Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. Welcome, I'm glad you're here. Now today we have nine questions, I believe, yes. And if you're new here, welcome. The way that this works is over on my podcast channel. So if you're watching this on YouTube, just hit the community tab on Sundays and put your questions in there because I asked for them, I believe it's like 6 a.m., on Sunday mornings. And I think that's central standard time because that's where I live. I live in Tejas in Texas. Um, so anyway, I put the, ask for your questions over there and then you populate them below and I pick the top eight to 10, just depending. And there's always at least one that is randomly selected because the way that I select the others is by the number of thumbs ups. So if there's a question that's very similar to the one that you want to ask, just give it a thumbs up. And the one with the most thumbs ups will definitely get chosen. And that just, you know, means that your question has a higher likelihood of being answered. So anyway, that's how I gather the questions. And without further ado, let's get right into them. Now, question number one says, hi, Katie, what exactly are body memories? How do I know that I have them? What do they feel like? And what options are there to treat them? In your last podcast, you were talking a lot about body memories, and I wondered whether you would share some more information about them. And there was a comment on this as well that I'll get into that's also a great um, example of kind of how trauma can affect us and feels different than just the memories popping up. So anyways, great question. What are body memories? Now, body memories, for lack of a better descriptor, because not, uh, and I'll get into this too, I guess a little later, is not all people believe that body memories are a thing. I am a firm believer that body memories are a thing because I've heard from my patients and viewers alike that these exist. I've seen the research, especially somatic experiencing therapy and why it works, all that stuff. So body memories are the, the memories that we have about a trauma or a situation that happened to us that are only felt in our body. They're not actual memories of like, uh, our, our brain, for instance, likes memories to be in narrative form, meaning put into a story and we'll have visualizations of it. We'll remember what we smelled, right? We have this working memory. Oh, I remember I was walking through that door and then I heard the alarm go off or, you know what I mean? Whatever it was that those are up in our head memories. Now, while often times, while I recall those up in my head memories, things like I remember getting up and feeling kind of tired, and but I went about my day, right? We have that kind of memory. Along with that, I may have sensations in my body that correlate with that story. Meaning as if the story is, I remember waking up and, and being really tired and achy, I might feel the tiredness again and the aches. I might experience that in my body. Or let's say the memory is is some like a physical assault or something that happened to me. I might feel them grabbing my arms again and I might feel all four of their uh, fingers and the thumbs on the back. I might feel 
that again. And I might even, some people have reported and we have a photo representation and videos to prove it. Some people will have, because we have cellular memory in our bodies, you will see the handprints show up, even though obviously this isn't happening now. This is like based on a memory, on a trauma memory. So that's what those are. It's the bodily sensations that accompany a psychological trauma or, or terrifying memory. And I think people have a hard time teasing them out sometimes because they are often so closely linked with the other portions of the memory. However, for a lot of us, we can feel like, I don't even remember that story fully, or it's like, like flashes of like photos almost, or I feel like I'm watching like a movie through a bunch of filters. I'm like, oh, I can't make sense of it. Right. A lot of us will have memories like that. And so the memory itself is very, very spotty. However, the body memories, the bodily sensations that went along with that are there in full force. And so sometimes even if we can talk something through and talk therapy over and over and over, we've put it into story form. Let's say we have a full memory or, you know, 80% of a full memory of a traumatic event, then why do I still feel so terrible? And that can be due to the body memories and our inability to get rid of those and process those through. Hence why there are things like somatic experiencing, which if you look up a somatic experiencing, it's a type of therapy that incorporates movement into our healing. And that is because neurologically, we know that when we are under threat, meaning threat for physical or emotional safety, when I feel under threat, my body goes into the stress response, fight, flight, freeze, right? Now it's in freeze or out of freeze that we believe trauma is born. And all that energy that our body cued us up for, right? For fight or flight to take action didn't go anywhere because we had to play possum or play dead. We didn't have anything else we could do with it. So when we go into that freeze, we still have all that energy queued up in our system, making us feel really charged and anxious and overwhelmed, causing a lot of PTSD symptoms like heart palpitations, things like that. When we release that energy is when we can finally heal. And so that's really what body memories are. That's why they exist. And hopefully that helps you just kind of better understand them. And there was a comment on this as well. And it said, yes, I was abused as a child and I've had memories. I have memories come up in my head, or at least I think they are memories. I'm even struggling with what I perceive as a memory is a lie. Oh, if what I perceive as a memory is a lie, these memories happen all the time. But I've heard you say that when you have those types of memories, it's like it takes you back there and it just kind of scares me. It doesn't make me feel like I'm really there. Is that a body memory? Not necessarily. And not to make this more complicated than it needs to be, but due to dissociation, which I have videos on that if you want to learn more, but it's it's kind of when our system feels overwhelmed, our brain pulls the ripcord, and it pulls us out of body or environment as a way to keep us safe. And so if we're having that experience where we kind of feel like we're scared, but we don't fully feel back there, that that just means that it's not that it, we could have been just dissociated during that time or that we aren't having a full on flashback. We just remember that part. And even just the memory of it is like jarring and we're like, oh, it scares us, right? Um, not everyone has flashbacks in the same way. Not everyone feels like they're pulled back into it. It's most common, but again, everybody's going to be different. And so the fact that you are like taken back there kind of, but not, you don't feel like you're in that same situation. You just remember it and you're scared. 
That's just part of your healing process. And I think it's in the memory recall that you're feeling that way. It's not necessarily a flashback or a body memory. It's just trauma memories and trauma memories can be scary. Does that make sense? I hope that helps. Body memories are things that are felt in our body, bodily sensations that are connected with the trauma. Now you might have some of the bodily experiences of PTSD, like heart racing, sweaty palms, um, maybe even feeling like you have like tunnel vision. A lot of people feel like they have tunnel vision. It's an adaptive way for us to kind of get to safety. Our body narrow, it like dilates our pupils and it focuses is focuses us in to help us get away. Um, so you might find those kinds of things coming up and those are very important to acknowledge and recognize that they are part of your trauma response and your body memories. And there was another comment that said, I think I experienced something that might be considered a body memory recently too. I was in a restorative yoga class where I zoned out for probably five minutes or so while we were doing a supported twist posture. And when I snapped out of that trance-like, the, the trance-like state that I was in, I discovered that I had tears streaming down my face. I don't remember being upset by anything in particular. I wasn't injured and I'm not really a big crier. So it really caught me off guard. It's happened a couple more times and I really don't know what to make of it. Now, this could be body memories, and but let me explain kind of what I... I, and these are just my thoughts, okay? So it's okay to disagree. If you have other thoughts, please feel free to share them in the comments. However, the person who asked this question, it sounds like we did have some trauma stored in our body. We do have some kind of, remember I'm talking about somatic experiencing, how the energy gets queued up. It doesn't have an outlet, so it just kind of circulates in our system. Doing that restorative yoga class allowed you to release some of that queued up tension or energy and that release or that relief caused you to cry because it was probably something that was really uncomfortable or difficult or maybe something we hadn't even recognized leading to a lot of other symptoms. I'd be interested if you found your maybe other PTSD symptoms going down. Like, do you feel a little bit more calmer, less hypervigilant? Like what's going on for you? I'd be very interested in that. Um, and so I don't necessarily think that what happened itself like that wasn't a trauma memory but i think it might have been stored there and that's why doing that certain release allowed you to kind of experience and express what you've been holding in or holding back does that make sense and i know a lot of this sounds really woo woo but trust me when i tell you that our brain and our body are inextricably linked there is no way to tease out only the physicality of a trauma and separate it from the the mental component or the psychological trauma they are intertwined. And yes, we can talk about them separately because one is experienced in the body, one is experienced in the mind and our memory of it and what we've made of that memory, thoughts we've had about it, feelings we've had as a result of that. But they work in tandem and they work together. And I think sometimes we focus so much on one or the other when we really need to be focusing on both. And I think that these restorative yoga classes, somatic experiencing, just getting some movement into our daily life is really, really helpful. Because as I'm, I'm researching somatic experiencing right now, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm working on a, a workshop to try to incorporate it. And the more I read about it, the more I realize that a lot of us are stuck in our trauma because of a lack of movement and just being more aware of what our body feels is incredibly healing and allows us to make better decisions going forward. But I won't get too much down the rabbit hole on that, but I just want you to know that if you're experiencing any kind of bodily sensation as it 
attaches to or is related to a traumatic experiencing or a traumatic experience, sorry, that is a body memory. Okay. And everybody has them. Not everybody acknowledges them, um, but they're there because our bodies went through it. And, you know, we have cellular memory, so the body doesn't forget. And we have to give it an opportunity to release that memory. I hope that makes sense, you guys. And happy to do like a full on video about this, but let me know, you know, if you have follow ups in the comments. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I find that I tend to wallow in negative thoughts when I'm in bed before I fall asleep. Yeah, join the club. Nighttime's the worst time. I go over old arguments, think about past events that upset me and despair over things that I dislike about myself. It can spiral into thoughts of suicide or self-harm fantasies. And while I'm improving in many areas, thanks to counseling, I find this time of day to still be very difficult to deal with. Do you have any suggestions for helping to curb these bad thoughts, specifically when I'm in bed and my options, such as reaching out to someone else, are limited? Many thanks for your channel. I find it both practically useful and um, helps lessen the shame surrounding mental illness. Of course, of course. I'm so glad. Now, it's a great question. Nighttime is tough, which is why I always tell people to have a coping skill list that can operate during the day and some that can operate during the nighttime. Now, night can be great if we have a member of our community because our community is very connected who's in another time zone, right? When it's nighttime for me, those people in Australia, it's not nighttime. It's like midday. I mean, it depends on how late we're talking, right? But I think uh, isn't I've, part of Australia, I think Sydney's like 17 hours ahead of me here. It might be off by a couple, but you know what I mean? It's nice to have people in different time zones so that you can still reach out. And that's why online communities can be really beneficial, especially at night, but making sure that they're helpful, not harmful. And I'm not saying that some communities are harmful on purpose, but if we're just sharing in our ick and all the this stuff that's coming up for us and never offering any positive outlook or any resources, then that's not really helpful. So just keep that in mind as you consider online communities. And I have a Facebook group that I'm I'm not active in all the time, but we have many members of our community who are moderators. We try to keep it as safe as possible. And it is a lovely, a lovely, loving place. And so you can hop over to my Facebook page and I think it's just called Katie is a group and you can join that if you're looking for some support. There's also like crisis text line, which you can text uh, 741-741 and that can be done at night as well. But also come up with some other types of coping skills. Like I love impulse logs. You can go to selfinjury.com. Let me pull this up here really quick for you. Selfinjury.com, go to their resources. And then under resources, you go to how to use the impulse control log. Impulse logs allow us when we're feeling urges to harm ourselves or to do something that we know is not going to be helpful. It helps us slow down and figure out what it is we're really experiencing. And so I find that to be helpful too. I also have a video, 25 coping skills. Just get on YouTube and put 25 coping skills, Katie Morton, it'll come up. Um, But those are all things that we can do no matter what time it is. And here's another tip when we tend to ruminate, because that's what's happening, we're ruminating on past events, you're talking shit about your, on yourself for things you said, we've all done it. I struggle with this too. Something that helps for me is what I call a reset. So if I'm laying in bed and I'm just like, I don't know, going through some shitty things or stupid things I said 10 years ago, or maybe a month ago, it doesn't matter. It feels like it just happened and I want to shame myself for it and feel embarrassed or guilt-ridden or whatever. I get up and I reset, <clears throat> meaning I have a, I have a drink of water Maybe I even rebrush my teeth. I might rewash my face. Sometimes I brush my hair. I might just have to go pee. I just get up out of bed. 
Okay, get up out of bed and do something. Pee, wash your face, brush your teeth, and then I do a full body shake. So shake out, Whew. like almost like you need to get water off of your body, just like a dog would shake or, you know, whatever from, I want you to do it from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. I want you to shake everything out and I want you to do it for countdown from 10, maybe 15 seconds. That's it. That's all we need. Shake, 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 shake. And then big deep breath, go back into bed and try it again. Now, the reason these resets can kind of help is when we find ourselves ruminating, again, I'm a firm believer that it's anxiety-based or trauma-based, and it's some of that queued up energy just circulating with no outlet. So we need to give it an outlet. So give it a shake out, and let's try it again. And sometimes that release, I mean, it doesn't, it's not a hundred percent effective for me, but I'd say it's probably like 80% or maybe even higher. Oh, the reset calms me down. It, it stops that thought spiral. And then what I do is when I lay back in bed, I try to force my brain into something that's actually helpful, like some goals that I have or a favorite memory or a vacation I want to take, especially because of COVID, Sean and I haven't really gone anywhere or done anything. And we're just now thinking like, okay, what do we want to do, right? We got to live our lives. And so I'm considering things we want to do, places we want to go, people want to see. Tell yourself those stories. Dream a dream. What's it going to look like? Who are you going to see? What are you going to wear? What are you going to eat? What's it, you know, just tell me all about it. And doing that mental practice will keep us out of the pit of despair, out of those like self-hatred spirals and help us fall asleep and have good dreams instead of these anxious panic attack ridden dreams or shame filled dreams that we might be having. Okay. So those are just some of my suggestions. Now there was a comment on this and it said, yes, me too. I recently started falling into a bad habit of staying up so late that I can't thought spiral at all because I'm so tired. Then I find it hard to function the next, next day. Sorry. I find it hard to function the next day. Is there a way to break this habit or ways to go around it? Yes, I would try all of those tools. I also have an older video about like sleep hygiene. And let me find it for you here really quick because I think it could be um, it could be really helpful. So let's see what we've got here. Yeah, four tips for better sleep. It's four years ago. Wow, that was four years ago. That doesn't feel four years ago. But anyway, yes, that can really, really help. Um, it'll just help us, you know, get rid of some of the things that might be causing our sleep to be, uh, whether we're having trouble falling asleep or we're waking up in the middle of the night, you know, any of those things, it's just good sleep hygiene tips. And those are all cognitive behavioral therapy based. Um, and hopefully it's really helpful. So yeah, keep me posted. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie. Sometimes it seems like you answer the same kinds of questions each week. So here's a different question. Do you have any ideas why I feel the need to masturbate whenever I feel stressed or sad? I've noticed that I do this often, but I never thought of much of it until watching some of your videos. I'm in my early 20s and have experienced quite a bit of sexual abuse in the past. That was going to be one of my first questions, if we've ever been abused sexually. I was molested as a young child, but I'm not sure if that would have anything to do with it. I've always thought of myself as a highly sexual person or just having a higher sex drive. Maybe that's normal, but I feel like it takes up a lot of time and I feel unsatisfied at times, even after multiple sessions, if you know what I mean. I hope that makes sense. And sorry if this is TMI. Thanks for all that you do. It's never TMI. I think sometimes we we worry about things being like too much information for other people or like too intimate. But if we don't ask then how are we supposed to get answers? It's okay. There's nothing wrong. No, no judgment here. These are all great questions. Now, 
this is something that we, I've probably talked about it a little bit, but I don't know to, to what extent, but when we use sex, masturbation, sex with others as a way to cope with an emotional experience, I feel stressed. I feel sad. Maybe I feel overwhelmed or whatever. Maybe I feel dissociated. I had a patient in the past who used to use sex as a way to try to ground herself and bring herself back. Whatever the reason, if we're masturbating to cope with that, then we're just using sex as a coping skill, which isn't healthy. And it's not as detrimental to us, we could say, as like, you know, self-injury, eating disorders, uh, drug addiction, shopping addiction, gambling addiction, all the things that we can do to cope as well. But it can affect us. It can affect, like you said, it's taking up a lot of time. You still don't actually even feel better. And if this wasn't just masturbation, if this was sex with other people, I've had this ruin a lot of relationships for people where they've cheated on their partners or spouses because they're trying to use sex to cope, right? So I just want to talk about that broadly. Now, the reason that I, my, my hypothesis then you'd have to tell me, and I have a couple question follow-ups to maybe hopefully help you be a better detective and figure out where this is coming for from you, coming from for you. I don't know. I'm having a tough time speaking today. Maybe because it's Monday. I'm recording this on a Monday. I'm like trying to wake up. Um, however, because you were sexualized at such a young age, we've instead of being taught at that young age on other ways to cope. I mean, think about being a young child, all of the things that we learn, right? We're little sponges for information and we're trying to learn how to interact with our world, how to manage upsets, how to ask for what we need, how to have, how to share, how to have relationships, right? We're learning all of this. And I know people might think that's, I mean, we're just so little, like really? Yeah. Think about it. Think about when you're a child and you go into daycare or if you have a sibling, like your mom makes you share or it make, they make you your turn, then their turn, right? There's a lot of interact. We're learning how to operate within society. If we cry, our mom, hopefully, or other caregiver consoles us, asks us what happened, helps us use our words, helps us do things to help us feel better, right? Um, maybe they say like, you can just lay here for a minute. You want me to rub your back? Or, you know, there's some soothing if that is replaced or is happening, but also we're being sexualized, we can incorporate sex as a way to soothe because we don't really know how. And it was probably, I would guess if this is happening to you at a young age, that we had a caregiver who was either abusive or, you know, non-existent, which by the way, neglect is abuse, but I'm just saying that they weren't around enough to protect us. And so instead of learning other healthy ways to self-soothe and feeling okay being upset, knowing that it will pass, because that's something we learn at that stage too, we learned that sex is a way to cope, that we do sexualized behavior as a way to self-soothe because that's what we were taught. And that's not any fault of ours. That's the fault of our abusers, but we have to reteach ourselves. And so what I would encourage you to do is instead of turning to masturbation, and I want everybody to know there's nothing wrong with masturbation. There's nothing wrong with having a higher sex drive, but it's when we're doing it as a way to cope with how we feel instead of acknowledging how we feel and soothing ourselves or processing through it, because that's a healthier way to do it. So instead of doing this, that's why you're not feeling satisfied, by the way, instead of masturbating, I would want you to try to put it off. Okay. It doesn't mean we can't, I'm not saying no, I'm just saying, let's try to put it off for a little bit. And instead of doing that activity, let's try something else that might be soothing, like calling a friend, journaling about it. Maybe we try the full body shake I mentioned in the last question. Uh, you can hop on and see those, that 25 coping skills video, check that video out. Try some of these different ways 
to better soothe your system and see how that feels. Now, I want to be honest here that it often takes five of those healthy ones to replace the one unhealthy one. Why? I don't know, because, you know, God's got a sense of humor. It's just the way our mind works. We're so used to this old way that sometimes nothing's going to fully replace that because we learned it way back when we were just little and we've been doing it for however long. So it can take a while for these healthier ones to replace that one. Does that make sense? And so anyway, I want you to give it a try. I want you to have multiple things that you'll try. And if you still feel the urge to masturbate, go ahead and do it. But I want you just to check in. I want you to to be a little bit more aware of what's coming up for you because we're probably trying to numb out with the masturbation, even though we can think, oh, I just have a high sex drive. It's just how I cope. We There are better ways to cope. Sex should be done as something that we, even masturbation, it should be something that, that's done because um, we're, I mean, we're in the mood, which it sounds like you're at least able to identify your sex drive, which is good, but it should be something that's like an extra. It's not a coping. It's a, I feel good. Today's good. I want to do this kind of thing. It shouldn't be done as a way to like numb out from something else. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Now there was a question on this, another comment that said, I only find myself interested, meaning insects, a few days before my cycle. Otherwise I could care less. When I do, I don't even enjoy it. It's more of a get rid of this urge, meaning biological need versus doing it for pleasure. Definitely no pleasure as I also tend to feel shame, disgusted, and dirty. Would, um, I would love, oh, that's, it's a typo. Sorry. I would love to never have the urges. Can I get rid of it? I don't, I mean, I don't think that it's about the urges. Let's just be curious here for a second, because the fact that there's shame, disgust, you feel dirty. I think some of the work that I would have for you, because my hypothesis, either there was some sexual abuse in your past, or you went, you grew up in church and like the purity culture got to you because I grew up in that same way. And it took me a long time to like deprogram sex being something that's like dirty or shameful. Um, And so I, I would want you to dig into that a little bit and figure out where it comes from for you, because I think that that biological need or that urge is just a healthy sex drive. It's totally fine to have it. It's part of how we're wired. It's not something we can just try to stuff down. Believe me, if you try to stuff it down, it'll come out in another way because it's it's actually representative of maybe something bigger. But hold on here. So and not getting any pleasure out of it. So you, you know, feel shame, disgusted, dirty. I want to dig into that and figure out that first. I think that's the most important component here. It's not actually about the sex. It's about what sex represents for you and why when we have a healthy sex drive or when, you know, the it's our hormones is what's happening. I would assume I'm not a doctor, but the fact that it's always a few days before your cycle would tell me that you're having some kind of hormone shift that is putting you in the mood. And then you're like hating yourself for it. And so I guess the journal prompt or the homework I have for you is I want you to write about what, what you think about sex, about consensual sex with adults, what you've been told about it, and what your beliefs are about it. Like, I don't know if that stirs anything. I'm just giving you a couple of options, but I really think it's important to like consider what you've been told about it and what your own beliefs are about it. And then like the third, as you move through this, then will be, what do you think a healthy view of sex would be? What does that look like? Can we even imagine? Might not be able to, and that's okay. But I want you to be a little bit more curious about that component versus the, I just wish it would stop. I don't want to ever want to, I like never want 
to want to have sex again because of, I feel so, you know, ashamed, disgusted and dirty. And so I just want it to go away. It's more, it's not about that. It's about something else. So dig into that a little bit and let me know what you find out. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Katie, why do we invalidate ourselves? When talking with my therapist at my last appointment, she had made the comment that when dealing with past trauma, I found my mind um, instantly putting up a block and wanting to say, I don't have trauma, even though I know that that's what it is. It says in parentheses, childhood sexual abuse. Even with CPTSD, I find myself saying that I don't have that. I've always thought of people with flashbacks and horrific nightmares. So I don't, um, so I think I don't have that but have realized how hypervigilant I am. I dissociate and I live my life on autopilot. It still doesn't feel right though, or justified, which then makes me want to deny it. This is incredibly common. And the reason that we can invalidate ourselves when it comes to trauma is because that helped us survive in the past. Meaning that when we were going through something that was really shitty, right? We're abused as a child, childhood sexual abuse. It, it erodes at our, our sense of self, in our confidence and our belief in ourselves and the belief in safety in our world, it it's really difficult to overcome, right? And so in order for us to overcome and to move on, to grow, to grow up, to keep going forward, we had to tell ourselves it wasn't that bad. I can get through this. It's not that bad. It's not even trauma. I'm totally fine, right? We minimize, invalidate, and just try to stuff, we stuff it down really deep. Because when we do that, then we're able to go forward. We're able to go to school, go to work, get a job, have a friend, do the things we need to do, even though we're just white knuckling. And that's why you said you're living on autopilot. It was a survival technique. And something that I sometimes have my patients do is just have a journal entry. It doesn't have to be a letter, but just thanking your body for getting you through. Can we tell our body, you know, thank you so much for letting me survive this? And you don't even have to believe that it was bad or that it was trauma yet. You can just say, I've been told from people that this was horrific and terrifying and traumatizing. And so I just want to thank you for letting me survive. And I think sometimes changing that conversation so it's not so shame-filled and I can't believe, you know, this wasn't that bad. Geez, you're just blowing this out of proportion. Instead of letting that conversation be had, let the conversation be that of gratitude. Thank you so much for letting me get through that. I've heard from people that it is pretty shitty. I'm not really sure, but either way, thank you for letting me survive, right? So we're thankful for the things that it's given us. We're thankful for the fact that this minimizing and validating was like us swallowing it deep so we could go forward. Now, that's kind of the first step. I would really also highly encourage you to check out the Courage to Heal workbook. It's great for childhood sexual abuse survivors. I think it's a wonderful book. Um, not only does it help us kind of process through what has happened, but help us move into a more healthy, happy sex life as an adult. And so I'd really encourage you to see if your therapist will work with you through it because it's something we should do with therapists. It's It can be pretty triggering if we don't do it with them. And so I would grab that and then just slowly but surely check your facts and question these automatic thoughts. So maybe jotting them down, like, I don't have that. I'm not traumatized, right? You said, even with complex PTSD, I find myself saying, I don't have that, right? Write that down. I don't have trauma. Mm. I don't know. I, you know, I don't have horrific nightmares. I don't have flashbacks. What are our facts about that? What can we argue back? Okay. 
So I don't have trauma. A, a bridge statement, if we're moving slowly, could be, I am able to hear that my therapist thinks I do have trauma. Okay. Or I am aware that they've diagnosed me with complex PTSD. I don't know if it's true, but maybe, maybe they're on the right track. Or people with, uh, you know, trauma have flashbacks and, and nightmares. I don't have those. Hmm. I also hear, I, I will recognize sometimes I hear Katie say that people experience trauma differently and everybody has different symptoms. I still don't think I have it, but, but I, I hear that part, right? And I know we can think again, bridge statements aren't supposed to be positive. They're supposed to just be more neutral, not so hateful, shameful, guilt-ridden. And let's try to move it in that direction because it's, it's very common. What you're going through is not weird. Nothing's wrong with you. You were traumatized. It's just a lot to accept. And it's a lot to acknowledge because there's something, I don't know if anybody else agrees with this, but I can't tell you how many patients and viewers have told me over the years that it's hard for me to say the words whether that word is I was raped, whether that word is I was abused, whether that word is I was traumatized, something about those words, it's like they hold this weight. And so to admit it and say, yes, this happened means that then I have to acknowledge how I feel and how I feel is pretty fucking shitty and I don't want to feel that way. So I'd rather not. And it's okay. Take your time. You're not supposed to just jump into it. You know, no, some people do and some people don't. You just do what's best for you. But I do, I just encourage you to be a little bit more curious about this. Check your facts, use the bridge statements a little bit, and then show yourself some great, like compassion and be a little grateful for the fact that it got you through. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says, I do the same thing though. I am still not convinced that I have trauma, no matter how many times, um, I'm told that I do. My therapist will read me the definition and say something like almost everyone has trauma or she'll say some things that I've told her are traumatic and I'll ask like what? And then she won't answer. LOL. Is it true that things like dissociating, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, thinking everyone hates you are only explained by trauma? Or are there things that cause almost identical symptoms to trauma that are just innately broken pieces of our brain or something or something that we're just born with? Now, dissociating in particular is not 100%, but I would estimate that it's like a 90% trauma response. And the reason that I, people push back and be like, oh, I dissociated and I wasn't traumatized. We talk about trauma, like it's this huge earth shattering event. I was in a car crash. I was in a plane crash. I had my house catch fire, right? We can have traumatic events and those are big T's. What we don't talk enough about are little T's and little T's are still traumas and they still build up to lead to a, P a PTSD or they can have the potential to lead to a PTSD diagnosis. Now, little T's are things like I got bullied for a bit in school. Um, I moved a lot as a kid. I went through a divorce. I lost my job. We had financial struggles for a long time. All of those are traumas. They're just not those big blow up your world traumas, but that doesn't mean that they're less traumatic. Does that make sense? And so just, I want you to acknowledge that we all, that's why we've all been traumatized, especially in the wake of COVID. No one is free from it. 
unfortunately, we've all been traumatized because we all feared for our own safety, right? Or safety of someone we love. Boom, trauma. And the reason that some of us develop PTSD and some of us don't comes down to like good old fashioned resilience. How much uh, support do I have? How many resources do I have that I can pull on to help me cope? Now, I'd, that's all. I'm just talking it out with you. Because again, going back to that first component of the question, you don't have to believe that you have trauma right away. It's very normal to minimize and invalidate. But I want you to, again, change that conversation. Try to be thankful to your body and to your brain for you know doing what it needs to do to get you through and see if that stuff helps. But you also mentioned like eating disorders, anxiety, depression, thinking everyone hates you. Not all of that is just from trauma. Dissociating eating disorders has a really high correlation. Again, not 100%. Nothing's 100%. But if you've had traumatic experiences and you're struggling with dissociation, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, thinking everyone hates you, you know, and your therapist or the professional that you speak with about this believes that it's trauma-based, it's probably trauma-based. But there are other reasons for um, anxiety and depression. For instance, I have people who are just more predisposed to it. Their family, you know, the history of it. Or they, you know, have always been a little bit more on the depressed state and it goes in and out of being clinically significant depression. So they have medication. There's, we know there's certain portions of our brain that are responsible for this. Things that light up, things that don't light up more activity in some parts, less activity in others. So there are things that are happening and things that are happening in our brain to lead to certain mental illnesses. However, the reason that we go and see a therapist is so that we can find out the root cause of this. Maybe it's it's our, you know, genetic factors. And so therefore medication is our best ally. And then we also get into therapy to help with behavioral tools to manage it. Because you all know that if you're drowning in your symptoms, then behavioral techniques and therapy is just not going to touch it, right? Because we have to get our head above water first. We just can't, right? And so it does help to understand that root. And it's okay to be curious about it. And it's okay to ask your therapist about why they think you have PTSD. Have them walk you through the diagnosis. It's your diagnosis. You have every right to question it and get some information. But I do encourage you to hear them out and to just be curious, not judgmental about what comes up for you. Um, and yeah, I guess that's those are my thoughts on this. So there are things that can cause an anxiety disorder or a depression or eating disorders or dissociation. But if we're having all of these things happen simultaneously, there's something bigger going on. And there is a root that is different than someone who has one or the other or ebbs and flows of anxiety. Like the most common I have is like, a lot of my patients will have anxiety about specific situations like at work about presentations or social situations or our depression gets worse in the wintertime or in the summertime, right? We have some seasonal depression. Um, but if you're dissociating, you have eating disorder, struggling with anxiety, depression, there's something else going on. There's a root to this that isn't just one of these things. And no, it's not that something's broken in your brain. Our brain might be functioning differently, but we have to rely on our professionals that we have called upon to help us and our own ability to be a detective. And being a detective means that we're just looking for information. We're not being judgmental, right? We're just seeking the information available. And so be curious, not judgmental and see what comes up for you. Again, you could just be born with it. Like there are genetic components to 
all mental illnesses. I don't know about dissociation. I'm sure dissociative disorders do have some kind of uh, genetic component, but you know, also PTSD has a genetic component. So yeah, there there are there is that piece to it, but there's also just know that even though if we have a genetic predisposition for something, something in our environment still has to like turn on that gene, meaning something has to happen. So it's not nature or nurture, it's nature and nurture always. Okay. Now there's another comment that says, Hey Katie, why do I put my experiences down in therapy and try to make it out to be not as big of an issue when it is? I even try to defend the person who's hurt me and constantly leave doorknob confessions right before I leave my sessions. I know I need to be talking about it and I want to, but I can't seem to say it at the beginning of the session. I've tried writing it down and even that doesn't work. I'm like, here's something I'm struggling with. Okay, bye. (laughs) What should I do? Talk to your therapist about this specifically, not about the issues. Something about the issues is triggering to you and overwhelming. And so you're shutting down and you're minimizing because I would assume there's something in there, whether it's like we've been traumatized. And so the way to survive was to stuff it down like we were talking about, or we were told as a young child or at another time in our life that like how we felt wasn't important, or we were always overreacting. Uh, if we were a highly sensitive person, we can be told that a lot. Oh, you're just too sensitive. Ugh, right. We can be shamed out of expressing ourselves. And so what I would bring up in therapy is that I was just what you told me here, say, I have a really tough time talking about anything important during the session. I always do it at the doorknob. Like I'm leaving them. Like, oh, this is bye, right. That's very common, but letting your therapist know about it. And then if you're able, here's the next step is to say something to the effect of next time I just drop something like that. Can you bring it up at the beginning of session and kind of push me on it? Now I know internal battle, the battle of the, I don't want to talk about this. This is going to be really hard. I need to preserve ourselves voice and the battle of, but I don't like how I feel. I need to get better. And my therapist is there to help me. What am I doing? Right. Battling it out. So just try each session. My goal is for you to tell your therapist about this, to tell her that you need her to bring it up because you have a tough time, right? I know it's going to be hard. I know there's going to be a lot of, again, internal battle, but just keep trying because I really feel like that maybe is our only way. I'm really incredibly proud of you for bringing it up at all. And I'm surprised that your therapist isn't taking your doorknob doorknob confessions and bringing it up at the beginning of the next session. That's what I do. I write it at the bottom of my notes and highlight it because I'm old school and I don't even do things in any kind of online doc. I still write my notes by hand, (laughs) type them later, but highlight that so that she could bring it up. I'm surprised she's not doing that. But again, everybody to their own. Maybe we just need to let her know that we want that to be brought up at the beginning. So we have time to talk it through. Um, And you're not alone. It's really, really uncomfortable for many of us. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie, can you talk about splitting in borderline personality disorder versus trauma bonds? Is it harder for people with BPD to tell that they're in a trauma bond because they think it's just their borderline acting up and making them view their partner badly? Meaning splitting. Are people with BPD more likely to get stuck in abusive relationships? The love-hate relationship in BPD is similar to the love-hate relationship in emotional abuse situations and trauma bonds. Both are emotional roller coasters. Yes, but they're different. Okay, so here's the difference between a trauma bond and splitting. Splitting in borderline personality disorders when we believe people are either all good or all bad. It's very black and white. And if we feel any kind of slight, this person that we put onto a pedestal and said like, they're the best ever. Oh my God, I love them. They all, all of a sudden, we hate them. They're the worst. How dare you? Bah, right? Get out of my life. We can like do that so quickly. It can happen 
in a day. Boom, from good to terrible. Trauma bonds are when we bond to our abuser as a way to not only soothe our system and help us feel connected, but also to protect ourselves. They come from two totally different places because borderline personality disorder, if you, if any of you don't know, one of the like key symptoms is fear of abandonment. Now in trauma bonds, again, we're doing it as a way to preserve self-preservation. And often we, through that self-preservation, the urge to save ourselves, I think of trauma bonds as almost like extreme fawning, which if you don't remember when we go into fight, flight, freeze, there's a fourth one that is called fawning where we people please to an extreme in hopes that the person who's harming us won't do it anymore, right? Again, self-preservation. And through that, we form a bond with this person because we can feel like they're the only one that can love us because they might've told us that. We might uh, feel like we are are romantically involved with them, right? Trauma bonds can happen to those of us who are in domestic violence relationships. It can happen in a lot of different ways. And so these are very different, <clears throat> very different experiences. And so that's, that's that, that's how they're different. Now, is it harder for people with BPD to tell that they're in a trauma bond? Possibly, but I don't I mean, it depends, it depends on your insight. I could see that happening because people with borderline personality disorder can struggle with their own identity and we can really struggle with healthy boundaries. Therefore, we can easily become codependent or completely enmeshed with other people having really unhealthy relationships. And so I don't know if it would make it harder for them to tell if they're in a trauma bond, but I do think that if they have any insight into their BPD, then they'd be able to tease out what's really going on. Um, but in my experience, when we're viewing a partner badly, if we have BPD, we've we've done the like splitting behavior already and we've thrown them under the bus and we probably said things we wish we didn't because our, you know, another a part of BPD is impulsivity. So we can be really impulsive, right? And then we can feel really bad about it. The difference is whether or not we're being abused or not is there abuse happening? And so that's something that, you know, you're going to have to talk to a professional about, maybe be a detective on your own experience. But again, you know, I, I, it could be harder, but if we have some awareness, I think we'll be able to tease it out, especially when I talked about the difference, if you're able to kind of tell that difference. And then another question said, are people with BPD more likely to get stuck in abusive relationships? We can be. Um, the thing about BPD, though, is that if someone harms us or does something to help us, like if not help us, that's not the right word, it does something to maybe trigger that fear of abandonment, we're gone, usually. We cut and run real quick. We do that splitting behavior. Fuck them. They're the worst. I'm out. Now, not all people with BPD do that. Some of us have, you know, we can get overly attached, but again, we'll do some of that like explosive behavior. Like I even had a patient, this is years and years ago now, who I I forget what I even said, something about higher level of care and we should look into that. And we'd done this before. She'd gone out to a higher level of care and come back. I was recommending it again. She did not like it. I don't know, something about it just did not sit well with her. And I mean, I've never been scared before in my office. And I was terrified at that point, this cussing and the screaming and the, um, all of that. And she didn't want to come back, but then she did. And so because of 
of that kind of dynamic, I think that definitely we could find ourselves in abusive relationships. I don't believe we're more likely than anyone else to find ourselves in that situation. Um, again, because everybody with BPD is different, but that splitting and kind of cut and running behavior, that impulsivity we can have can, you know, cause us to, to leave first kind of. And so I don't think stuck in abusive relationships is, is as common. Now the, um, person says the love-hate relationship in BPD is similar to love-hate relationship in emotional abuse um, and trauma bonds. Yeah. And they are emotional roller coasters. I will agree there 100% with you that, you know, emotional abuse situations or trauma bonds and BPD are all emotional roller coasters, which is why it's really important that we see a professional. I, I mean, for BPD, dialectical behavior therapy or DBT is the most effective Honestly, it's helpful for all of us, but specifically those of us with BPD. And then when it comes to emotional abuse and trauma bonds and things like that, we need a trauma specialist if possible. Do something like EMDR, somatic experiencing. We can do some talk therapy. Any of those things could be really beneficial. Now, there was a comment on this that says, hey, Katie, I have a similar question. My therapist told me that I have BPD. And since then, I've been questioning my judgments. She told me that most of my judgments are driven by emotions. Wow, that's a lot to drop on a patient but I don't know how to validate my judgments. I'm extremely worried that I might end up making the wrong decisions in life. Do you have any suggestions? Lots of love. First of all, I'm really sorry that your therapist said that to you. That's not, I'm not saying your therapist is like bad at their job. I just don't know why they would have said this to you. It's not really helpful information. You know what I mean? Okay. So instead of worrying about making the wrong choices in life, I would talk to your therapist about doing some DBT or dialectical behavior therapy, because part of that is learning how to be in what's called our wise mind versus our emotion mind. And she is correct in that when we have BPD, we, we can let our emotions run the roost, meaning, sorry, my nose is really itchy here, meaning we can let our emotions make decisions for us. So instead of taking a breath and a beat, and like assessing all the information, we can be impulsive. That's where the impulsivity comes out of. That's why we can struggle with the splitting and self-injurious behavior. All of that comes out of that kind of uh, emotion run brain. Now, does that mean you're going to make all the wrong choices in life and fuck everything up? No, we just need to better understand our own experience, what's coming up for us, why we act out in that way, and how we can do it differently. And DBT is incredibly helpful for that. It allows us to be more mindful so we can notice when we're more emotionally charged because spoilers, we all kind of know. Like if you're in a bad mood or having a bad day or you just feel on edge, we feel that. All of that is indicative, especially if we have BPD, of us not being able to make good choices. If we're feeling really, really stressed out and overwhelmed and on edge, if you're able to put off a decision, you should probably put it off because we're not going to be able to see clearly. And we can learn some tools and techniques and ways to better manage that emotional overwhelm so that we can feel calm. We can pull ourselves out of that emotion mind into that wise mind and make better decisions. So know that not all is lost. Just because you have BBD doesn't mean you can't make good decisions. You can totally make good decisions. We just need to learn some tools and techniques to kind of soothe that impulsive emotional part of ourselves. Does that make sense? I hope so. And know that it does get better, okay? Don't let anybody tell you that just because you have BPD, nothing's going to get better. That's bullshit. I've seen it happen over and over. You can and will get better. Okay. Number six says hi and moin to everyone. If anybody doesn't know, moin is um, when we went to visit our friend Jürgen up in Bremen, Germany, in Northern Germany. 
Everybody said that to say good morning. Moin. We loved it. Okay. It says, I am curious if having sex that you don't want, but said yes to can be traumatizing. I have social phobia and was at the point not able to say no because I was just so scared. I think I dissociated a little bit while it happened. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk or feel my body while at the same time being in quite bad pain. He is now my boyfriend and I love him a lot, but this event still haunts me. Saying no is hard, but I'm getting better at it. And it kind of feels way too bad for what actually happened. Oop, minimization there. Two people having consensual physical intimacy. I mean, everyone talks about consent and it was there, but I still feel very helpless. That was two years ago and I still don't know what to think about it. What do you think? Okay, so when we freeze... So there's a couple of things. First of all, freezing and not saying anything is not consent. If anybody need to hear that, that's not consent. Okay. Like when people are like passed out drunk, not consent. You can't consent when you're drunk. You actually can't consent either. Spoilers. Okay. So having said all that, and I have a whole video about consent as part of my sex series I did years ago. Um, I bet you can find it. Just look up, you know, sex series, Katie Morton, it should come up or consent, Katie Morton, it should come up there. So there's that. And then there's what may have happened if I'm hearing you correctly. It's that you said yes to it, but then regretted it, like then just freaked out, dissociated, and it was traumatizing. So it doesn't actually matter. Even if we consented, it, you were still traumatized. And what I would encourage you to do, there's a couple of ways we can go about this because if what what I'm hearing you saying is correct, like if I'm, you know, taking this information and digesting it correctly, it sounds like you consented, but then it was traumatizing because you, you, you're like, I was just too scared to say no. I get so overwhelmed, right? So it's like we weren't even in the right piece, like we weren't even in our right mind to say yes, but we did. So in his mind, he doesn't think anything bad happened. And that doesn't mean that he's right or you're wrong. That's not what this is about. This is about your experience and how that situation felt for you. And so a huge part of me thinks that getting into therapy and processing this could be extremely beneficial. And at some point I would encourage you, doesn't mean you have to, but I would strongly encourage you if this relationship is important and you want to stay in it and you love him, like you said, I love him and you want to be with him continuously, I feel like we need to talk to him about this and it's not to blame. That's the one thing. This isn't about I'm right. You're wrong. You did something. We're not trying to shame or blame him. We need to have some kind of way that we can talk about what took place and maybe heal our sexual relationship. If it's might be still tricky for you to have sex with him without dissociating. I don't know, but it doesn't hurt for him to better understand your experience so that let's say, we get into a situation where we feel overwhelmed one day and we can't say no. We say yes and then dissociate. We need to have some kind of signal or something, or I don't know. There could be a better way for him to know if you're okay or not okay or checking in with you before initiating any sexual contact. Um, yeah. So I feel like the fact that it put you in pain, it, you were dissociated, you couldn't move or talk, like all of that to me, it's a trauma response. You were traumatized and we need to process it through. Again, I think it could be really helpful for him to be part of that, but that doesn't mean he has to be if you're not comfortable. Um, again, based on what you said, it doesn't sound like he probably didn't think anything was wrong. And 
again, that doesn't mean that I want you all to know these two things can happen at the same time. We can be traumatized by a really shitty situation and the person could have not intended for any of that to be traumatizing and thought they did everything just the way they were supposed to. Those two things can exist. We can be traumatized and they could not have intended that to happen. One does not negate the other, okay? Especially in such sexual situations like this where we weren't, we couldn't even do anything. We just, we froze. And it's a, you know, it's a stress response. And we need to, I think somatic experiencing could be completely helpful for you. I would encourage you to look into that in your area and see if you can get into just, you know, even just a few sessions would be helpful. Um, but I really think that that could help. And yeah, those are my thoughts. I'm sorry that you're in that situation. Um, but if you feel safe talking to him about it, I would try to bring it up so that we can have some kind of safety situation so that we can tell him because I don't know how, because you said it still haunts you. So I'm wondering how your sex life is now. Okay. And you said saying no is hard too. So yeah, that's something we could work on in therapy. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hello, Katie. My question is related to trauma. Is it possible that my therapist is not having me process being raped because I'm in the middle of an ongoing trauma with my daughter? Is it a bad idea to process things while they're still happening? Yes, it is. My daughter began disclosing sexual abuse by her father when she was four years old. She'll be eight this month. She says, she says the abuse is still happening and we're, we are still fighting to be believed. Then in April, I was sexually assaulted. I'm having a hell of a time coping. This isn't the first time I've experienced this, but last time I was able to dust myself off and get back up and live my life. Now I can't even say the word rape. My therapist knows that a couple of months ago, I told him I was ready to process it, but I don't know how to talk about it. He gave me some homework, which I did, but then things with my daughter escalated again. And that has taken up almost all of our time recently. As a footnote, the symptoms include dissociation, two panic attacks in the last month, almost no sleep, and I don't want to be around people. Any advice is really appreciated. First of all, I'm so sorry. I'm so ugh, I'm so sorry this is happening. It happened to your daughter. Her father deserves to be fucking punched in the throat and thrown away for life. Okay. Now that I got that off my chest. When we are in a because this has already happened to you, right? You already were in a situation um, where you were sexually assaulted, right? You said it wasn't the first time you've experienced this. <clears throat> the fact that your daughter's going through this too puts you back into a trauma experience and it means it's ongoing. And I've talked about this in the past, but I don't know if I've done it recently. It's not safe for us to open ourselves up and try to process a trauma when we're currently going through one. Because in order to process a trauma, we have to get ourselves either into a safe or neutral place, meaning... A lot of the work that's done, even preemptive to the digging into the trauma is what we call like resourcing and helping us calm our system down and feel okay. Because if we're over uh, stimulated and we're triggered all the time, we're going to be in that like dissociated free state or in the fight flight response. So we're not going to actually be able to process things. If you don't know, we can't process a trauma when we're not in that resilient zone or what we call like the window of tolerance, meaning that I don't go into freeze dissociation and I don't go into fight or flight. So we'd keep ourselves in that resilient zone in order to make any progress. And so I would assume, but you should ask your therapist for clarification. I would assume that he's not processing this with you because you're not in an okay place right now. And I know that sucks, but that doesn't mean that we can't work on our resources. And so that's actually where I personally would take you 
if you were my patient. Now, I would probably explain to you why we're not working on it, but I know sometimes, you know, you're in a crisis, but ask your therapist about it. Mention it. Say, hey, I did that homework, you know, and I told you I was ready to process it, but we haven't really gotten into it. And I'm just curious, is it because of the stuff with my daughter? And then he can answer. He can let you know. And then you could even say, hey, I talked to this therapist on the internet and she said, maybe I should work on some more resourcing. And I'm sure he's going to be like, yes, because that's a, a great thing for you to do at this time. And that will help pull us hopefully into that resilient zone, into that window of tolerance or that space where we can then process, but we're going to need those tools to do it anyway. So it's good work um, so that we can still feel like we're moving forward. Okay. Hope that helps. Question number eight says, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I am in my late twenties and I'm just about to start studying a course on mental health. Yay. I'm excited because I love learning and I'm passionate about all things involving mental health, but I'm also terrified at the same time. And I'm wondering if this is the right fit for me. I'm quite a shy person, an introvert, and I suffer from social anxiety in certain situations. Therapy has helped immensely over the years, but I still struggle sometimes. I worry that I'm just not extroverted or confident enough to help others with their mental health concerns, or that I'll say or do the wrong thing and somehow make others everything worse for the person that I'm helping. I was so worried about that too. I would hate to unintentionally hurt someone in any way. Is it possible to succeed in a people-oriented career, especially in mental health that requires excellent people skills if you're not naturally extroverted or you experience social anxiety? Thank you for the wonderful podcast, Katie. I listen to them weekly while coloring the wind down. Oh, I'm so glad. Yay. Okay. This is a great question. Now, the funny thing about being a therapist is, yes, we interact with people and we do have to have good people skills. But I find the best therapists are actually those of us who aren't extremely extroverted. Okay, now hear me out. And here's why you're going to be wonderful. Those of us who are more introverted, because I'm, I'm social and I love it, but with people that I know well. Another, and then I need to recharge. I get really exhausted from social interactions. So I'm definitely kind of more towards that introverted side, okay? But what that does and what that means is that I'm usually really good at reading people because I don't want to cause any issues. Part of that people pleasing in me that I battle with all the time. So I can read people really well. And I'm fine with being quiet. Both of those. Also, I'm a really good listener. Those are actually way more important components of a therapist than being extroverted and, you know, being good with people and being able to work a room. Sometimes I find my my friends who are therapists who are super, super social, they struggle to give their patients time to answer. Like, I, I know that all of us in therapy are like, oh my God, my therapist just let the, it look, it was quiet. They just let the silence hang <sighs> until I said something. I know that that sucks, but it's also really helpful because if a therapist feeds us too much stuff and talks too much, then we don't get the time that we need to process or to maybe come up with an answer. Cause as a therapist, I know I'm not asking questions like, Hey, how's your day? Right. I'm asking things that are hard. Like, how did you feel when your mom did that to you? Right? That's fucking hard. That's a hard question. It's going to take some time for us to like, oh, how did I feel? I don't know. Oh, right. And we need to be able to, we need to be able to have that quiet time and be okay with it. And so I think you're going to be great. I actually don't think therapists need to be outgoing, extroverted. Being good with people does help. But I think you're selling yourself short thinking that your social anxiety or your introversion means that you're not good with people. That just means you're just more selective. And this is different, right? This is work. It's not personal. 
And I think those boundaries will be helpful in letting you kind of tease that out so that you can go into your office feeling confident because you'll get there. None of us were confident at the beginning. I was so worried. I was just going to like mess somebody up and say the wrong thing and like ruin their life. And I was like, oh my God, like it's such a privilege, right? And such a responsibility to be a therapist. And we have to take that seriously and, and sit with your patients and, and hear them. And that ability to be quiet and a little more introverted is going to serve you well. But please get into your own therapy. It sounds like you're already doing it, but continue it. I found that incredibly helpful, not only insightful for myself, but helping me better understand my patient's view of things. Continue that as you start working because that will really take you to the next level. Okay, you're gonna be great. Final question, question number nine. says, hi, Katie. In what way do you think mental illness affects a marriage most? More specifically, what's the best way to manage depression in a healthy marriage? Great questions. And we haven't talked about this. I tried to pick a question that was a little different since someone did say I answer a lot of similar questions and I definitely do. So mental illnesses affect marriages when there's a lack of communication. And I honestly think communication is the biggest, it fucks up the most marriages. Pardon my French, but that's just me. That's how I talk, right? You guys know that. If we can't communicate with our partner, it doesn't even matter. I don't know why we're getting married. It's just going to slowly turn into resentment, passive aggression. Then there won't be any sex. Then we won't communicate about this. It just, rah, terrible. So communication is what affects marriages most. And if you want to talk statistics, they always say sex and money are the two big deal breakers. That's what will break up a marriage the most quick. And that's just because if there isn't sex and there's issues with how money is spent, it doesn't even matter if we're broke or rich or whatever. It's it's issues with money and how it's spent. Those are the two things that break up a marriage most. And I would argue that those are both driven by communication. And so when it comes to mental illnesses, especially depression, right? She says more specifically, how do we manage depression? Number one, we have to talk to them about it. And I have tons of videos about how to talk to people about our mental illnesses. The key here is to keep it short, to know that there are repeat conversations. This is just one of many that we will have. Keep it short. What do we need them to know? And always end with what we need from them. Is it that we need them to hear us out more or to be open to having more of these conversations? Is it that we want them to go to therapy with us? Whatever it is, that's how we you know, we have to start, we have to let them in. We have to let them know about what we're struggling with. Whatever mental illness it is, we have to talk to them about it. I know it's hard to let them in, but if we keep them out, then they're going to not know about a huge portion of our life. And we're slowly going to feel, instead of growing together, we're going to feel ourselves growing apart. And so talking about it with them, if you don't go into couples counseling as a whole, like all the time, have them come into your sessions every now and again. I think that's really helpful and healthy. And it helps just give them an insight into what you're working on. You can talk with your therapist ahead of time on like what you want to share, what you don't want to share. Um, I would be curious about what you don't want to share. Now, I am not a believer in your partner has to know everything about you. That doesn't mean we're keeping something from them. That just means that like, you're going to have some stuff you're still grappling with that you don't know what language to put to it that you're talking with your therapist about. And your partner might not need to know that right now until you kind of have come to terms with it, right? We're still independent people. We're just choosing to go through life with another person. And we have to continually choose that through communication and connection. And so just to wrap it up, we have to talk to our partner about it. 
maybe keep it short, multiple conversations about it, right? Tell them what we need from them, all that stuff. So talk to them, maybe have them in session off and on and be open to educating them about it. If, and, and telling them how important one of the things you're going to need from them is how important it is that they're open to learning because when it comes to mental illnesses, especially our partner has to be open to learning about our mental illness in a real way, because if they don't, then they're never, it's like how we can talk all we want, but they're going to have to listen. Right. And they're going to have to meet us halfway and also know that it, it goes both ways too on your side. Like if you're telling them about your struggles and what's happening, we have to be open to listening to them. We can't then turn around and say, well, I have my own shit. I can't deal with yours. That's not a relationship then. That's your, then now you're treating your spouse like you're a therapist, right? So make sure that we stay in therapy. Make sure we talk to them about it. Make sure that it goes both ways and that we, you know, slowly but surely tell them about our experience and educate them on what's happening and continually let them know what they're doing right and what we're still needing from them and doing it in a way that's compassionate and kind and knowing that they're, they might have questions that might take them a while to digest something. They might still not know exactly how to interact, but that's when we can mention it again. We have to be patient too. Um, so often I find my, my patients in my practice would not tell their partner until it was really, really bad. And their partner already knew something was going on. They just weren't sure because they weren't talking to them about it. Right. So wait till it's really, really bad. And then they get mad at their partner for not immediately knowing what to do and changing their behavior. And that just causes this, this rift. And then it's really difficult. Then you have to repair that rift versus if the person who is struggling, and I know this is hard and I'm asking a lot of you, but it's hard. We have a relationship. It's not just us or we have someone else involved, right? But we have to give them time to understand and come around and assist. And part of that's going to be us being patient and being uh, open to repeating ourselves and offering them educational tools, books, worksheets, bringing them into sessions, things like that um, to help them better understand. And little by little, we'll get there. But that's just the best way to manage it is just to have it be part of the conversation. We all have shit going on in our lives. We all have things that we're bothered by, upset by. We're going to go through times of periods in our life when we feel worse or better, or we have loss or whatever. We have to bring them along with us. We have to choose to let them in. Every time you want to shut them out, you have to choose to let them in. Otherwise, you are going to shut them out and then we're going to grow apart. Does that make sense? So it's just that communication. And I know for a lot of us, vulnerability is like ugh, a no-no. But if we don't let someone in, then are we even really in a relationship? I would argue maybe not. Um, and marriage takes work. You know, for anybody out there thinking, oh, relationships are just easy. They're not. They're not hard. They shouldn't be incredibly difficult. But we're going to go through difficult periods and we have to choose to work together. We have to choose to hear them out. We have to choose to let them in. And that's the best way to manage it, I think. And that can continue to help your marriage be healthy. Um, and I just cannot encourage people to get into couples counseling enough, especially when we're going through a rough patch. It's okay. It, it doesn't mean something's wrong with your marriage. We need to stop that conversation thinking that because you're in couples counseling, it means your marriage is on the rocks or your relationship is on the rocks. Uh, no, that's preventative. If we go earlier, just like in with our own therapy, if we go to therapy earlier with our partner, it's less likely we'll end up breaking up or getting divorced that's just how it works. It just helps give us some tools and a place to communicate what we need to communicate. Okay. 
I hope that was helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Please share this with a friend. Tell people about it. Leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave reviews these days and wherever you listen to your podcasts. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.